You're listening to Calvary La Habra's podcast. For more information, visit us at calvarylh.com. Thanks for listening. On behalf of uh, myself, Lori, and our entire church, we uh, thank all of you for studying the Word of God with us this year, uh, whether it's online or here. Um, For all of you who continue to serve and give and pray and help build out the children's wing, and just it's been um, very humbling. It was so, so great to be uh, on the back parking lot this morning. For uh, any of you that were here for sunrise, it was uh, a full parking lot, a full crowd, and I was sitting there watching just everybody worshiping the Lord. It was a beautiful, cold, sunny California morning, but um, I was reminded of last year, you know, there was the stay-home order a governor gave us, and obviously there's a superior order in our heart. It's the order of our God saying, come home, and here we are. And um, last year we were up on the heights. Uh, we brought a studio up on the top of a mountain and said, well, people can't go outside. We'll bring outside to them. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not a studio guy. I'm not trained for that. I don't know how to just talk to a camera. I don't want to just talk to a camera. But uh, God knew what he was doing. And I remember getting up there and going, how, how do you, Lord, anoint me for that camera right now? It was just a weird thing. But the word got out that we were up there. And, you know, I don't know how everyone found us. But people came around. And they were sitting around and stuff. And it was just this very intimate thing. And, and uh, to come back here, no breakfast, no, you know, no this. And it was, uh, it was a hard thing. And we had a lot of tears um, following that. Uh, both those, all those studies, but uh, what a difference a year will make, amen, the faithfulness of God, and so we are here, and thank you guys for uh, being part of the journey, and for all you new folks that are here, welcome as well, for all you that are online, welcome, and uh, may the Lord touch our hearts this morning. Let's turn our Bibles over to the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to be in chapter 27, pick up in verse 57. And it says, now, when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded that the body be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb which he had hewn out of the rocks. And he had rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. This part of Matthew chapter 27, it begins with, Now when evening had come. This is the evening of Passover day, A.D. 32. I'm a visual guy. Picture earlier that morning, let's go all the way to 9 o'clock. At 9 o'clock, there was this mountain, this hilled area. They called it Golgotha. It looked like a skull. And Romans commonly liked to crucify their, their criminals in that spot. It was a, there was an area where people could walk by. You could send a strong message to people as to the arm and the power and the strength of Rome and That particular day, Passover day, documented historically by secular historians and and Christian historians, 
for all of the events that happened on that day. That day at 9 a.m., the familiar sounds of centurions, the familiar sounds of weeping family members and friends as one of their own was about to be crucified, to see the dust kind of kicked up as the criminal got a little bit closer. Plop down would go the crossbar on top of the upright beam. Those two pieces would be tied together. The criminal then would be just like thrown on that cross, laying on the ground. Picture those Roman soldiers, one of them going, you got the spikes, give me the spikes. And it was something they customarily did. This is something they were familiar with. But as they were nailing this criminal to that cross, they heard something I'm sure they haven't heard before. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 9 a.m., 32 A.D., that Passover day. Up the cross would be lifted, dropped into a hole. On the cross would hang this criminal for six hours. From 9 to 12, there would be a few things that this criminal would say. From 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, everything changed. It was pitch black over the land. The Bible accounts for that. Secular historians account for that. If you go into Rome and go into their archives, they chronicle back and account for this day, Passover day, 32 AD, pitch blackness from 12 to 3. At the close of that, at 3 p.m., the sixth hour that this criminal hung on that cross... He said to Telestine in Greek, it is finished. And he yielded up his spirit. And there was a great earthquake, the second. Just this massive earthquake that, that just rocked the land. Just everybody. History, secular, Christian history all talks about that same day with the darkness. Also later on that day, just a violent earthquake. It was that day, Friday, Sabbath, or excuse me, Passover. It was 3 p.m. And the Son of God yields up his spirit, saying, What I've come to do, that part, well, it's been fulfilled. But it wasn't over. A little later on, somewhere now into the evening, this man that Matthew talks about here by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, and it references the fact that he had his own tomb. Wealthy people were able to procure land and pay for the construction, if you will, the hewing out of, of, a, of, a, of a cave into a mountainside. They would then plant gardens around that and it would be the future holding place for their family. As a family member would die, they would take them and lay them in part of the, the tomb, which had a chamber where you could lay a body on that slab, and there it would begin to decompose. Once, decomposed, once a body decomposed, it, it ran its course. They would go and collect the bones, and they would put them into these, these clay boxes called sarcophagus. And as a family member would die, they would go through that whole process. This was a wealthy man who had 
in the area, proximity to where Jesus was crucified, had purchased land, had this tomb constructed, and none of his family members had yet occupied that tomb. This man, Joseph of Arimathea, in John chapter 19, it talks about him. It says that he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. You see, Joseph's initial encounters with Jesus left him intrigued, left him curious, and left him cautious. But as time went on, he went from being cautious to being convinced. At some point, he became a true follower of Jesus. A serious follower of Jesus. So serious that he would go to the governor of that region, Pilate himself, who just the day before had tried Jesus two times. Both times declared him innocent, but nonetheless had him scourged and gave right for him to be crucified. This man, Joseph of Arimathea, which is mentioned in all four of the Gospels, who Matthew wants us to know that he is this wealthy man. Mark, in his account of Joseph of Arimathea, says that he was an honorable counselor. Luke, Dr. Detail, I call him, goes, well, let me, let me tell you about the council he was part of. In Luke 23, it says that he was a council member and a just man. He was a council member in that he was part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the 70 members, the hierarchy of Judaism that gathered two days prior of Pilate trying Jesus. And those 70 men, Joseph of Arimathea being an established Jew at the top of his league in Judaism, was the one man that the Bible says did not consent to the death of Jesus. When everyone else caved in, Joseph of Arimathea was the kind of a guy that stood up. This guy, who was fearful, he was fearful of being identified with Jesus. He was, he was like, comes to a point where he's not so fearful to side with Jesus. And with time, he becomes, through further investigation, a follower of Jesus. The Sanhedrin had said in John chapter 9 that anybody that decided to do anything with Jesus would be cut off. All this guy knew was Judaism. His livelihood was now steeped in Judaism and what Judaism had afforded him in the position that he held. And as he, he would investigate Jesus, he got to a point where he could just say, no, I do not concede to this man's death. We know that being a council member, he would have been in Jerusalem while Jesus was being crucified. The man that he said should not be put to death, he would have been close enough to observe the sounds, the ongoings in the city that was putting him to death. He would have been living in the very city within proximity of where Jesus was being crucified when it just went pitch black for three hours from noon to three. 
he would have been close enough as a member of the Sanhedrin, his inner circle would have been those guys, their families, and all of the priests, the hundreds of priests, and those family members of the priests that served around the temple. That would have been his sphere of of influence, and that would have been who he hung out with. There is no doubt that he was hanging out with, with, with his like when Jesus was being crucified, when it went pitch black, when the earth began to shake. There is no doubt in my mind that when the earth shook and the gospel account says that in the temple, in the temple, in the inner of it was the Holy of Holies and what separated the Holy of Holies from the outer chamber of the temple was a veil. The veil was 30 feet wide and 60 feet tall. It was very thick. It was all kinds of different layers of cloth that was sewn together. It took 300 priests to hang this thing. But when Jesus yielded up his spirit on Passover day at 3 p.m., it says the earth shook and the veil of the temple was torn in two. You see, Joseph of Arimathea was exposed to all of these unique ongoings of God that, re, that, that are tied to the redemptive plan of God for a purpose. All of the truth that he observed, he would now be accountable for. Everything that he heard about Jesus, observed about Jesus. First-hand witness related to Jesus. The effects of Jesus on other people's lives. The healed people, the forgiven people, the transformed people. He was now impacted by that. And he went from being cautious and fearful to convinced. So convinced that he himself would break away from the rest of the council and go to Pilate, the governor, (laughs) that had just had Jesus scourged and allowed him to be crucified and go, can I have his body? Roman law only released the body of a criminal that was crucified to their family. Can I, I'm not a family member, actually I'm a Sanhedrin, can I have the body of Jesus? In identifying with Jesus and being all in with Jesus, he simply saw something in Christ that was more valuable than everything he had gained in life to that point. Because in asking for that body, he was saying, See you later to his life. It goes on as we look at the Gospels. And it says that there was another man in John's Gospel, in Mark's Gospel, excuse me, and then in John's Gospel. Well, it talks about this man, Nicodemus, who also came and helped Joseph of Arimathea with the body of Jesus. Nicodemus, we remember him who came to Jesus in John chapter 3, so early on in John's ministry, and he came to him by night because he was a Pharisee. And as much as Joseph of Arimathea was afraid of being identified with Jesus because he was one of the hierarchy on the council of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus was equally fearful. I don't want anybody to see me talking to this guy that I'm intrigued to and need to know, get some answers from. So he comes to Jesus by night. And he basically said this, I've been watching you, man. And, and I, I've seen that, like, the things that you do and the things that you say, no one could do those things or say these things unless they are from God. Jesus went right to the topic of heaven and how you get there. He's like Nicodemus. 
Unless a man is born of the Spirit, unless a man is born again is what he said first, he'll, he'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's Nicodemus. Nicodemus scratches his head and goes, born again? What are you talking about, born again? Oh, well, Nicodemus, you know, this whole thing about, what, do I got to climb back up in my mother's womb is what he said. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about physical birth. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. I'm talking about spiritual birth. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So marvel not that I say to you, you've got to be born again. You're not going to heaven unless you're born again. People ask me over my lifespan, are you one of those born-againers? And I'm like, I hope so. I hope so. And thank you for noticing. Not sure what road you're on, but I'm going to heaven. Based on what Jesus said. That guy, Nicodemus. Oftentimes in my background teachings, I'll support some of the archaeological things and some of the historical things by quoting secular historians. We have accounts from secular historians who wrote about what was going on in Jerusalem in the time that Jesus walked in that area. And one of those that I often refer to because he's so accurate and so detailed is a man, a secular man by the name of Josephus. And many traditional writings connect Josephus and Nicodemus together as biological brothers. And it says about Nicodemus that he too came from and was a man of wealth. Tradition tells us that once he became a follower of Jesus, he and his family were impoverished. So picture these two men who were fearful when they first And cautious at first when they met Jesus, but with further examination, both of them moved away from being cautious and curious to absolutely courageous and convinced. What was it? What was that like to walk up to this cross and you're like, Jewish law says we've got to bury our loved ones on the same day. So, okay, it's Friday. It's in the evening. We're going to go up. And there he is. You, you know we went through this on Friday. Scourged, nailed, beaten, speared through the side. All of this to fulfill scripture. All of that for you and I to die on the cross to save us. You would have had to have brought a pry bar, a ladder. Someone had to pry those stakes out of his hands and his feet. Someone had to take the lifeless corpse and drape the body, the bloody beaten body of Jesus over them and bring him down. And someone had, they had to carry him over towards Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. When we take our tours to Israel, we go to Calvary and from about here to the corner of, of Imperial and, and Euclid, there's, there's a, a guard, really cool garden that they've excavated in the 1920s and whatnot. And there's a really cool tomb that fits the the bill of all of this and quite likely the very tomb that Jesus was laid. Here's Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who says in the Gospels that they brought a lavish amount of spices. It was a burial for a king. But traditionally, as we read through the Talmud, the, the, the rabbinical writings, we learn about their burials and they were very, very tender moments. Very tender. They would take water, they would mix it with spices and aloes, and 
They would begin to wash the body. It was very detailed, beginning at the head and washing back the hair and cleaning the beard. Just picture these guys going through this process. And as they're going through the process, I mean, they, these guys knew the word of God. They were beginning to, like, really put their faith in Jesus so much that they're willing to say goodbye to their whole livelihood, everything that they were reared to be and do, and everything that supported them and their family. They were like, let's wash his body. You know, just what was it like when they got to his, his scars? Did, did Zechariah, the prophecy of Zechariah about the Messiah, talking about him being pierced through the side, did that come to their mind and going, wow? Did, 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 did Psalm 22 come to their mind, which talks about the, the, the crucifixion and, and the nails and the just this, this, all of this? Did it come to mind? Did, did they look at his body and go, wow, none of his bones, though, are broken? This is radical because it would say in Isaiah that that would be the case. And when they, they came to Jesus, the, 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 the whole guards went to, or the religious leaders went to Pilate when he was still on the cross. They're like, hey, we want to put an end to this. And the way you would put an end to a person hanging on a cross that was still alive is they'd push up with their legs to take a breath and then go back down and push up again and keep doing that along. They would break their legs. And they asked if they could go break the legs of Jesus. But when they went over to his body, he was already dead. So that's when they took the spear. And all of this just falls in line with the word of God. None of his bones would be broken. He would be pierced in the side and his hands and his feet. Were they like sitting there as, as biblical scholars tripping out? I would say so. And then they began to just, you know, wrap him. They'd wrap the head in a separate piece. They'd wrap the arms from the fingers all the way up to the armpits. They would cross over the arms. They would mummify the body. You understand what that looks like. And then they would lovingly just place Jesus in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea's family, a tomb which no one had laid in before. It's late in the evening on Friday. Matthew says two other women were there. Names one, just says, and the other Mary. The first was Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, this was the life she had before she met Jesus. Every time she walked on this side of the road, if you were walking towards her, you looked at her and you walked on the other side of the road. She was demon-possessed. She had seven demons. Knew nothing but a life of horror, torment, torture, shame, ridicule, making, people making fun of her, running from her, trying to avoid her. But then this man, probably the first man for the time she was demon-possessed, that didn't cross the street. This man of compassion and sorrow, acquainted with our griefs, would approach her and deliver her. And from that moment on, Mary from Magdala, who Jesus delivered of seven demons, could not be anywhere but by him. You could research her name and you're like, wow. She could never be away from the one that saved her, that transformed her life. As we move through the, the storyline, in verse 62, there is a third day to this story and we are going to get there. This is the we're going to go second day, then third day. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priest 
and Pharisees come back to Pilate. Remember the last time they were there, it was all bringing Jesus and trying to throw all these trumped up charges and get permission from Rome via through Pilate to have him crucified. They've crucified him now. This is the next day. This would be our Saturday if we were following the chronological order of days. And they came to Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, how this deceiver, notice how they label Jesus. This deceiver said, After three days, I'm going to rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate's like, oh, man, you have your guard. Go your way and make, make it as secure as you can. And so they went out and did just that with Joseph of Arimathea's tomb in whom Jesus' body has now been laid. You know, I think about Pilate. I'm not a fan of Pilate. He had Jesus in front of him on two separate occasions. Fluffed his robes. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know I have this power and this authority? Tell me. And it was that kind of an attitude towards Jesus. But he was watching carefully. And both times he would examine him. One the first time before he would realize Jesus was a Galilean. And that meant that Jesus was out of his jurisdiction. And he knew that that was Herod's area. And Herod was actually in Jerusalem. He just kind of, I believe there was intrigue there. I really do with Pilate. Yeah, you know, everyone's saying you're the king of the Jews, but you're here in this, like, you're all bloodied and beaten and in this, this pauper's clothes and just, you look, just, you don't look like a king to me. And he would release him to Herod. He would come back and, and, and then he would really want to get Jesus to talk. And he'd have him scourged. And he wouldn't talk. He would watch his guards put a crown of thorns on his head and a robe and just mock him and ridicule him, throw him out before the crowd, say, behold the man. And three times he will publicly pronounce the innocence of Jesus, even to the point, this guy, Herod, or excuse me, Pilate, even to the point where he'd be like, hey, everybody, I'm washing my hands in a vase of water, signifying, symbolizing to you, I am innocent of this man's blood, to where the people would cry out, his blood be upon us and even our children. That's how much this, just the crowd turned on Jesus in a week. That man is now encountered again by the same religious leaders who came to him to have Jesus found worthy of a capital crime and have him put to death. And now they're like, listen, you know he's had a following, if I could just summarize this in a, in a Lance Cook way. You know he has this huge following. And the inference was, you know he has all of these people following him that have been deceived. Now, if his disciples come and steal his body, think of how that deception is going to be way off the charts compared to what it has been. But it's like, oh, and this guy to me, I mean, I got an issue with this guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know Pilate's own wife? How many of you guys listen to your wives? Whoa, some of you are in real trouble. <laughs> Not because you didn't lift your hand. You'll pay for that tonight, but because you don't listen to your wife. Whoa, okay. Lee, you listen to your wife? Indeed. Indeed. 
Pilate's wife had a dream when he was trying him. And it's like, have nothing to do with that man. I believe Pilate knew exactly who Jesus was, and it was like settling in and sinking in. But power, influence over people, fluffy robes, position, went to his head. And he didn't want anything to dethrone that. Go guard the tomb. So, chapter 28, after the first on the Sabbath, we come to the third day. Remember again in Jewish thinking, one part of any day is a whole day. It's a day. They would count it as a day. So Jesus was crucified on Friday. They, they had this conversation on Saturday. Now we come to the third day, the first day of the week, Sunday. It's early in the morning, Mary Magdalene, there she is. The other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him. And, and they just became like dead men. There's lots of pictures that depict the resurrection setting. There's lots of people who talk about the resurrection setting. There's lots of, you know, pictures of people, you know, I've seen them where the angel's rolling down the stone and Jesus' hands on the other side, like, peering out, like, thank you for helping me out, you know. <laughs> He's got his foot on one side. They got their foot on the other. You're like, okay, hold on. This is the biblical account. As we'll look at this, we realize... He's raised from the dead. He's not there. Amen. Okay? So I know I've kind of jumped to the end of our whole Bible study, but... <laughs> but I want you to just be there. Be there. You're going to consider this like I am. Someone had to roll that stone back. And I just think... I think God had had it with the soldiers. I think he's like, yeah, Pilate, huh? And he probably just looked over in heaven. And he's like, you, you're buff. I got a message. I'm, 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 you're, you're, go. <laughs> yeah, you're going to go. And you, you, you are going to go to the tomb of my son. And you, you are going to just open up the tomb. You're going to roll back that stone. Not to let him out, but to let the witnesses in. They got to see. All right. And he goes. He descends from heaven, rolls away the stone, and, and he's, he's like sitting on it. And it just, he's an angel. He's just sitting there shiny, like real bright. His clothes are like, man, like, his clothes are like snow, man. This guy was like, beep, you know. It's dark outside, and he's like lighting up this whole, like, you know, I'm sure the girls are walking. What's that light? And there's the angel. Luke said that they brought spices to anoint the Lord's body. They were still expecting him to be there, which is kind of interesting. Matthew says here, as the ladies arrive, there's a great earthquake. Interesting. Second one in the last few days. 
girls are there and these Roman guards that were placed there, 15 of them, to guard the tomb. It says they're like their dead men, paralyzed with fear. We might use the phrase scared stiff. Verse 11, we're going to look ahead at what these guards do next. Then we're going to come back to the women and close talking about the significance of the resurrection. While they were going, behold, some of the guards came into the city. So the earth had shaken, the stones rolled away by an angel, sitting on that stone, glowing, and they're like, they bolt. They head into the city, into Jerusalem. Jesus was crucified outside the city. And they report to the chief priests all these things. So they, they, they would have went. It's early Sunday morning. They would have went to Caiaphas' house, his, his quarters. I've been there several times. It's a cool, cool pit stop. And they begin to tell him what happened. What happens in verse 12? This is so serious to them that they assembled all the elders. Picture this. Get all of the guys that make decisions, every one of us, and let's have a powwow. And they assembled them and they consulted together. And this is what they came up with. Let's buy these soldiers off. Let's give them a large sum of money and let's tell them to tell everybody. Read this with me. Tell people that his disciples came at night and stole him away while you were sleeping. And I like this part, too. This really gives me like a, ah, it's pilot guy. And if this comes to the governor's ears, if it gets back to the ears of the man who just tried Jesus and claimed him innocence, we'll appease him. We'll buy him off because he can be bought is the idea. So they took the money. They took the money and they did as they were instructed. And I, I, I pause here and I ask myself as I look at the world today and we look at the, the truth about Jesus, the truth of God's word, we just have to ask ourselves, how valuable is the truth of Jesus to you? At what, at what point would you, I'm just going to use the phrase, be bought off? At what point would you minimize, marginalize, not allow the truth of Jesus to impact you as he desires the truth about him to impact you? At what cost will you find something more important than that? We could look at these, these, these soldiers and Pilate and go, what a bunch of, that's weak. These guys just saw that. They, they saw him crucified. They saw the darkness. They saw the earthquake when he yielded up his spirit. They saw him yield up his spirit. They heard him say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is all part of the same family of, of guard that would have been assigned to that area. They saw the angel. That wasn't make-up stuff. They were scared stiff. When they came to Pilate, I'm sure they probably Roman dudes. They had nice olive tanned out skin. But I'm sure when they showed up to Pilate, they were like white and big eyes and their hands are probably shaking. Yeah, dude, you're not going to believe what you saw. 
How much would you sell truth out for? What would you sell truth out for? What more must, you know, God do to prove he loves you? What more must he have done prophetically, written all of these 300 specific detailed scriptures about his son that we could go through the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and, and clearly go, oh yeah, it was talking about him. How much more accurate and prophetical does God need to be to convince you he just loves you? He just wants you. He gave his best. It's true. But we read the account, and what's so scary is it's like they took the money, and they did as they were instructed. And this is what just breaks my heart. Matthew, at the time of writing, is like, hey, listen, this was like what was commonly being reported around Jerusalem with all the Jews. Everyone bought into that. I want you to think through this. They bought into a lie in the face of irrefutable truth. You do know that Jesus walked on the earth for the next 40 days. As Luke would say in Acts chapter 1, demonstrating through many infallible proofs that he is God. But that's how attractive the world, the identity of the world the short-lived values of the world, the short-lived pleasures of the world are to some. That's how, how well Satan can blind the eyes of people. It's real. There's a real enemy. He's a real deceiver. But it doesn't change truth. It just changes how you see truth if you let the enemy deceive you. Truth is still truth. Jesus died for you regardless if you want to let it impact your life or not. He still died for you. He rose from the dead to prove that he is God, that he is able to deliver on everything that he promised to do. The one who says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, rose from the dead, proving that he can save you. Bribery. I'm a logical guy. Let's picture this playing out. How does this play out? Okay, you're a Roman guard. You come up to me. Hey, you Roman guard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can't you tell? My, I got the cool skirt thing and the, you know, the sandals and my sword. And my, yeah, I look like yeah, I'm a Roman guard. Yeah. Hey, you're, you're, you're assigned to Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah. Hey, any, any chance you were around the Jesus guy? That guy? That whole trial? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was. You were there? Yeah, I was there. Really? Tell me. What, what, what part were you around? Yeah, we all were around the crucifixion because it was this Passover and all, you know, it, it's ten times the amount of people in Jerusalem. We're all there guarding the city. And then, you know, some of my bros, they, they, they were, they, they, they crucified him. And yeah, yeah, interesting guy. He's like praying to God to forgive him. Man, I, yeah, yeah, some of my other buddies, they were there too. They, they said, yeah, at noon, just the blackness of, they, they attribute it to him. And then some of my other buddies are around there too. And, and at three o'clock, he like yells out, it's finished. And the earth just shakes and he yields up his spirit. And, and a bunch of my friends were saying, truly, this is the son of God. They connected the dots. But I was on a different detail, you see. So um, 
I was assigned to the tomb, me and 14 of my other buddies. Oh, you were at the tomb. Yeah. He's a wealthy guy. He had this really rad pad over here, this nice plush garden and everything. We were like, that's a cool place to be assigned. And, you know, there's this whole thing where the guy was saying three days later he would rise from the dead and everything. But, you know, listen, 15 of us guys, we were there. And I just want you to know, he had his followers. There was, there was, there was 12 of them. There's 11 left. Yeah, fisherman kind of guys, tax collector, doctor, you know. But, you know, they're, they're kind of like Navy SEALs. They just, it's the craziest thing. For three days, all 15 of us were there. And, and you know, they came and they stole his body while we were asleep. We just... Jingle, jingle, jingle. Now, wait a minute. This is you, all 15 of you guys were asleep. All 15 of you. When these fishermen, this tax collector guy, and this doctor guy, and a couple other guys, they just like stealth like came in and like moved that stone that you guys put there and you put a seal there while you were asleep. Yeah. All 15 of us. Well, the earthquake by the way, that is documented in the archives of Rome, as is the blackness, as is Josephus wrote about it, and other historians that lived in that region on AD 32. The earthquake, you're a Roman soldier, right? Yeah. You didn't feel the earthquake. I just watched Channel 7 News. They said it was the seismic was like 7.6. This was radical. You didn't feel it. No, we didn't feel we sleeping. All 15 of you. Yeah, just sound asleep. It's a long week. We were tired. And then I would just have the basic question, as you would write about now. If you guys were asleep, how did you know it was his disciples? I got to go, man. <laughs> I got to this, this is just not logical. But it's what human nature will do with truth. When something is more valuable than that truth. At least in their mind. We come back in verse 5 and we'll close this up with the girls. Angel answered and said to the women, do you, do not be afraid. I know you seek Jesus, which is one key word. You're seeking him. One who was crucified, he's not here. He's risen. And he said, now I've highlighted my Bible, come see. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And then I have highlighted and go quickly. Come see, go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. And as we would read on, we'll see that they would encounter him. Come and see the Greek word ido, I-D-O, which means to not just glance. It's, it's not a glance. It would be like if you really were wanting to examine something for the sake of evidence, you'd be present, you'd be focused, no distractions. Ido is to look intently for the sake of perception, clarity, deeper understanding. Check it out, we would say. What would you see as they looked in, as later Peter and John will look in, as others would look in, as we peer in? 
what would we see? We would see exactly what Jesus said we would see on the third day after his death. He would not be there. Peter and John, the ladies will run to them and they'll look in and see, same word, and they'll believe. And Peter will make note in John's account that the headcloth was neatly folded and off to the side. So if you looked at the wrappings, it would have, the cocoon of Jesus, it would have looked like his body, but he was just lifted out of the grave clothes, bodily resurrection. And then it takes hands to fold. And he was like letting them know everything he said they would see, they saw. He's not there, but his grave cloths are there. Bodily resurrection. Jesus had told all of these individuals around Matthew chapter 12, the religious leaders and everyone was there and they were like, we want to see a sign. You've been claiming to be God, you know, Messiah, give us a sign, prove it. And he says, no sign will be given. But he says, first of all, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. But no sign is going to be given except that of the prophet Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the well for three days and three nights. And I'm sure looking at him like, that's the sign? He goes, here's your sign. Here's how you know that I'm God. As, as he was three days and three nights in the belly of the well, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the, in the heart of the earth. That's how you'll know that I'm God, because I will raise from the dead. Ten times, I, I researched it this week over and over again, Jesus clearly made reference to his being raised from the dead on the third day throughout the Gospels. What do we see 2,000 years later as we peer in? We see victory over sin. We see the hope of salvation. We see the hope of eternal life. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Paul was saying that the events of Christ's life are fundamentally historic. They are, they are historic events that matter. They are events that matter because forgiveness hinges upon his life, death, burial, and resurrection. So does salvation and so does eternal life in heaven with him. Later on, Paul goes through that, that passage and he begins to say in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 15, listen, listen, you've got to understand that, that he was seen after he was raised from the dead by over five large groups, over 500 people at one time. He, he was seen by James. He was seen by the apostles. And even me was one born out of due time. Then later on, writing to the church of Corinth, a, 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 a Christian group of people that were really, I believe, being infected by the pagan culture of their day and even by some of the Jews, the religious culture of their day, because the Sanhedrin was running around in that time saying, there's no such thing as resurrection. No one's raised from the dead. And Paul would have to write the church and say, hold on, hold on, hold on. Don't you dare start buying in to the philosophies of our day. If there's no resurrection, then Jesus did not raise from the dead. And if Jesus did not raise from the dead, then our preaching is completely empty. And your faith is completely empty. 
And, and we're false witnesses because we're running around telling everybody that Jesus actually rose from the dead. When in fact, if nobody can rise from the dead, there's no such thing as resurrection, then Jesus did not raise from the dead. And if Christ has not risen, your faith is futile, he says. And that means you're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in this life only we have hope in Christ, like it's just he lived and he died and he's no more, then we are of all men the most pitiable. Now, if that's where it stopped, I would be like, oh, that's a bummer. But we have verse 20. It says, but now Christ Jesus is risen from the dead. Amen. He is. That means our preaching is not empty. It's full. It's full of what? It's full of the inspired, inerrant, eternal word of God that transforms lives. Thus, we are not false witnesses. When we are sharing the gospel, we are sharing truth, truth that changed our lives and truth that will change the lives of those we share the gospel with. Our faith is not empty if Christ is raised from the dead. It is not empty or futile. Our faith that we have placed in Jesus is effective. It is fruitful. If we have placed our faith in Jesus to save us, he saves us. If we place our faith in Jesus to forgive us, he forgives us. Amen? Amen. Because Christ is risen from the dead, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have not perished. They are in heaven. As Paul would write later, that second letter, 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Yesterday I called my mom. It was the the two-year anniversary of the Lord taking my father home. I was thinking of my dad. miss my dad all the time. But I began to think about my mom, so I called my mom. And I just had some fun with her because she's a strong believer. And as a, just like a little boy, I just kind of went, Hey, Mom! Oh, hi, Lance. I says, Hey, Mom, where's Dad? just like a little boy. And she starts laughing. And she says, for heaven's sake, Lance, he's in heaven. <laughs> and we laughed. We rejoiced. We miss him. She said it. I miss him. Me too. Just want to make sure you're okay. Oh, he's, he, he wouldn't want to be anywhere other than where he is right now. That's the hope we have right now because Jesus raised from the dead. He's the first fruits. So we're not the most pitiable on earth. We're the most blessed on this earth. Let's all stand and I will finish my thoughts. The girls... In verses 8 through 10, it says they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Interesting. Fear and great joy. And ran to bring his disciples' word. They, they, they did like the angels said. And as they stepped out in faith, that was what... God delivered the message to them through that angel, and they just needed to act in faith. And as they would act in faith, Jesus met them, as is always the case when we act in faith.
And he reassured them. They held his feet. They worshipped him. He said to them, don't be afraid. How many of us all this year, sometime or another, just dealt with some fear? Don't be afraid. Get past what you're fearing. Continue to worship me and go tell others. And that, my friends, is where you and I will experience joy. So what was it like? Yeah, it's, it's intimidating. It's intimidating for me to get up here and do funerals these days. Because the average congregation that makes up a funeral, I'll just flat right out tell you, it is not this disposition. They, they, most of the people, rarely, when we do funerals, unless it's a strong believer or whatnot, but rarely are people wanting to hear the gospel or going to church these days. So it could be intimidating. But each time I share the gospel, someone meets me here. My heart fills with joy. And I just keep one foot in front of the other, being obedient to what he has put on my heart to be and my heart to do. But what was that like for whoever it was? Let's back through the story to go up to Joseph of Arimathea. Say, Joseph. He's not there. He heard it from someone. What was it like for these women who just couldn't not be around Jesus to now run up to people and say, we've seen him. And we've worshipped him. And he has dispelled our fear. He's risen from the dead. What's it like to tell Nicodemus? The one who came to Jesus by night. The one that Jesus said, Nicodemus, as Moses held the serpent up on the pole, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that all men might be saved. What was it like for that guy to hear? He, he's not there. And that, my friends, is what propels the movement of Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. If we confess with our mouth and we believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 2,000 years ago, some gals took that to heart. And 2,000 years later, a 61-year-old man is standing in front of you in front of a new suit that he got on sale. <laughs> Looks good in it, you know. And he, and, he, and he just, with every bit of his fiber, feels like a little boy, humbled by this truth. Another opportunity to share it with another person with joy filling in my heart, believing that the very word of God that I just preached is not futile. 
but it will accomplish in the hearts of those that were open to it here, outside, online, exactly what your creator desired to do in your heart this day. What is he purposed in your hearing the gospel on this Resurrection Sunday? What is he purposed to bring some of you into a relationship with him? To bring some of you back into a relationship with him? For some of you to affirm your relationship with him? But there has been a purpose of God for you to hear the inerrant, inspired, eternal, powerful word of God that transforms us and renews us every time we hear it if we have receptive, open hearts. Purpose of your God. Father, we, we, we pray and we ask that in these just closing moments as we are here, as we really think through that, that last observation, that, man, there's a purpose in us peering in and the Ido looking in to the details of the resurrection again today. You, you know our hearts. You know where each one of us stand with you or have yet to stand with you. Father, I would just ask that in these moments as we examine our hearts and, and just make it right with you that, that you would meet us in this place. And I'm going to ask me to play a song, and he's going to play it a couple of times. The first time he, he plays it, I'm just going to ask you to stand where you are and just really go there with the Lord. Whatever he has impressed upon your heart, you, you keep going there with him. If you're, you're not a Christian, you're like, man, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to be a Christian. I'd like to give my life to Jesus today. Well, I, I would encourage you in these couple of moments right now to just tell him that. He's very much here or where you are and able to hear the cry of your heart and say, Jesus, I, I, I'm a sinner. I need you to save me. And just tell him you believe that he is God. He's the son of God. You believe he's the Messiah and ask him to come into your life to wash your sin away, to fill you with his spirit. Just cry out to him. Say, save me. And if you've been distant, you're just not where you should be with the Lord. You just know it. Tell him that. And if you don't see what it is that you've loved more than him in this estranged season. Ask him to show you that. He will. But either way, be honest before him. Just see him with open arms. See the heavy heart of a God who just desires to embrace you and love you and walk with you and bless you. Have that talk with him right now as we we're going to sing this song and I'll share a few more thoughts and we dismissed. Come out of sadness from wherever you've been. Come broken hearted, let rescue begin. Come 
earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. So lay down your burdens, lay down your shame. All who are broken, lift up your face. Oh, wanderer, come home. You're not too So lay down your hurt, lay down your heart, come as you are. We're going to sing that one more time, and I know it's been a while since we've had opportunities to embrace one another, lay hands on people, and pray for them. And I'm going to ask me to play that one more time. And if you're like, man, I, I just need someone to pray especially if this is new to you and you know, you're, you're like just giving your life to Jesus, we'd love to pray with you. But we're going to have some leaders come up here and just, just stand up here as we sing this another time. Just come up and just let them know how they can pray for you. And then I'm going to come back out and dismiss us. So move quickly, though. We're just about there. Come out of sadness from wherever you've been. As we celebrate throughout this day, Lord, may you be in our gatherings. May we be mindful of the the health that we have today, the family that we have today. More importantly, the significance of our celebration today, the purpose. May we focus on you and continue to bless you throughout this day, on this very solemn day as we celebrate your resurrection. Thank you for meeting us here all week. Thank you for all of the lives that you've touched. Thank you for this year allowing us to gather. We're humbled and we love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand. It's been a great week. Thank you all for coming out. Enjoy your celebrations. As I always like to say, here, there, or in the air. We'll see you soon. God bless you.